It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Coming up, a health policy expert looks at possible changes to Medicare with a federal budget in the works and questions about future funding for the program. First, a bipartisan group of senators introduced a bill that could make it easier to restrict or ban technology products and social media outlets that come from China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, Venezuela, and Cuba. The social media app TikTok, based in China, has gotten the most attention. The bill could allow the White House to heavily restrict or even ban the short-form video platform here in the U.S. The bill was introduced on Tuesday. Bipartisan co-sponsors include Democratic Wisconsin Senator Tammy Baldwin. The bill called the Restrict Act would work to create a risk-based process so that the U.S. government could control and monitor national security threats. Another bill in Congress backed by Wisconsin Republican Mike Gallagher would flat-out ban TikTok from operating in the U.S. I want to hear what you think at 800-642-1234. What do you think about the idea of banning or restricting TikTok in an effort to protect U.S. national security? What do you think about uh, the U.S. using foreign-owned technologies, whether for consumer use in general or at the government level, where many states, including Wisconsin, have banned the use of TikTok on official devices? Call in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. Steve Knoll is a digital and social media marketing professor at Madison Area Technical College. Steve, welcome back to Central Time. Great. Thanks for having me, Rob. Let's key in on TikTok. Now, the big concern is it's owned by a a company based in China. We've heard concerns raised that that... uh, well, that could be bad for the U.S. if the, the program is, if the product's widely used here in the U.S., uh, which it is. What are your thoughts on this idea of TikTok as a potential security threat? Well, this has been going on for many years. TikTok is definitely known to have some stuff within the code of the app that people don't really quite understand what it does. Um, TikTok is known as what's called a data scraper. And this is, as much as it sounds kind of scary, all social media basically is looking at personal data to match you up with consumer products. And really, that's the main purpose of TikTok is they want to learn what kind of products you're into so they can show you ads for Chinese-made products. Now, that into itself is it not anything to be concerned about. The big question is, what else is in TikTok and especially if it's on a phone that has access to other apps that may be logging into secured resources, is somehow TikTok spying through your phone on other business applications? One of the concerns is the ability to, as you mentioned, scrape data. Uh, If the Chinese government wanted to, theoretically, they could say, yeah, we're not going to use this just (laughs) to sell Chinese products, say, but to collect information on people in the U.S., their comings, their goings, uh, especially if they're government employees. How much of that is specific to TikTok versus, you know, our information is constantly being scraped and sold on the open market? Right. And that's thing is, though, that's the business model of all social media apps. The big question is, you know, a lot of the American um, originated apps like like Facebook and Instagram and even Twitter, really, we know a lot more about the code and what is actually in the apps. And we, we really know that, yes, the business model is basically to figure out, do you own a cat? And if so, we're going to put an ad in front of you for cat food. 
TikTok, however, is there, there's just some stuff in the ad that cybersecurity experts have looked at, and they're just not 100% sure where this data is going. And the massive, massive popularity of TikTok is probably the concerning thing. There have been other apps that have come out that have, are a lot more malicious than TikTok, but their lifespan is maybe only a few weeks or a few months, and then they, they die out of popularity. TikTok, on the other hand, has been one of the number one apps for about five years, especially with users under the age 30. Talking to Steve Knoll from Madison College, looking at efforts to potentially restrict or ban TikTok. A couple different bills in Congress with participation from members of Wisconsin's delegation. You can join in with your thoughts or questions at 800-642-1234. Let's bring on a caller now. Linda Marie is with us in Muskego. Linda Marie, hi. Hi, how are you? Good. What did you want to bring up? I wanted to bring up the fact that isn't it a little too late? What kind of damage has already occurred from people's primitive brain? Because the instant gratification of being on TikTok is so thrilling for most people. Not for me, of course. I uh, I really watch how I use social media. I'm so glad to hear on your program that perhaps they might ban it here. Linda Marie, thanks for the call. Uh, Linda Marie pointing, Steve, toward another concern about, I think, a lot of social media, uh, the impact it has, whether or not it's a nefarious intent, the impact it has on users who can get hooked and, and overdo it and, uh, and what it does to our brains, Linda Marie worries about. Well, and, and that's kind of the nature of social media. It, it's designed in a way to actually kind of be psychologically addictive. And there have been a lot of studies about, you know, heavy social media users and how when they, you know, have social media taken away from them, they actually experience heroin-like withdrawal symptoms. So something like that can definitely be very concerning. But at the same point, too, you know, if you think about the idea of like, you know, the concept of a couch potato, someone who lies on the couch and watches television for eight to 10 hours a day, are they addicted to television in the same way that some people are addicted to TikTok? The difference there though is the couch potato watching TV is in a one-way communications model. That person is just watching the television. In the TikTok version, the television is also watching the person. And that's where the concern comes in is that that circular exchange and what data is actually going out with them. Thanks for the call, Linda Marie, at 800-642-1234. As I mentioned, Wisconsin Senator Tammy Baldwin is a co-sponsor of this Restrict Act. I want to give a listen to a clip of her talking earlier this week when this uh, legislation dropped. While many of these technologies and platforms are popular, especially with our young people, we also know these products have the potential to endanger American users and threaten our entire national security. When it comes to platforms and products owned by foreign adversaries like uh, the CCP, uh, there is next to no transparency for users about where their data is being stored and what the information is being used for. Senator Tammy Baldwin there. And Steve TikTok's USA branch says, well, no, no, no. All the information in the U.S. stays in the U.S., is there a way that they could establish that that, in fact, is happening, that there could be a middle ground here where 
uh, TikTok doesn't necessarily have to divest from China, but they could do things to alleviate concerns in the U.S.? Well, they have kind of done that. They've, they, they have established like an American division. And yes, they have said that, oh, no, all this data that's being recorded and, and archived and all that stuff is, is staying here. But do we really know? You know, and that's what a lot of this um, comes down to. And, and, you know, TikTok right now is being presented as the big bad villain in this story. But the reality is, is this, um, this, act that that Tammy Baldwin and other senators are trying to look at it's not just TikTok right. you know there's there's a lot of other apps out there that are infinitely more scary and dangerous than TikTok but i think TikTok as well, as much as there's some definite legit concerns about it is definitely being presented as the villain and i think my concern is that if we do ban TikTok which i i don't think is a good idea overall there will be something else that will be just like TikTok or even worse. And then are people just going to kind of ignore it for a couple years because it's not TikTok? Well, meanwhile, it's scraping all this private information and sending it to, you know, other countries. Russia, for example, is well known for some really nefarious, nasty data scraping apps. And they're not out to sell you products. They're out to steal your identity. And I think that we have to keep this in perspective, that the conversation seems to often revolve around TikTok, but we really need to be talking more about the technology and not just blaming one specific app. We're talking to Steve Knoll, digital and social media marketing professor at Madison College, looking at the Restrict Act. That's a new Senate bill that would allow the White House to restrict restrict or potentially ban uh, foreign technologies, including, but as Steve was saying, not limited to the social media giant TikTok. You could join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Do you worry about uh, social media apps from uh, uh, rivals or potential rivals around the world and how they could be used if you use TikTok yourself? Does this all worry you? Should it stay or should it go? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. We'll continue the conversation coming up here on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. We're picking up our conversation with Steve Knoll from Madison College, looking at a bipartisan bill to restrict some of the use of foreign-owned technologies from selected countries, including Russia and China, giving uh, the White House, in effect, the tools to restrict or ban certain technologies and social media platforms. TikTok, the poster child in some ways, not the only uh, item on the list. You could join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800 642 one two three four or email ideas at wpr.org and as i mentioned steve uh, this is a, a toolkit for the white house to use if this bill is passed um what would you like to see the government do in evaluating an app a hardware product a software product coming from one of these countries to say yes or no well i be- i think the big thing with this is i i hope these organizations will do a better job talking to each other you know, technology moves very, very fast, and the law moves very, very slow. And one of the big concerns, and I think that this act is going to try to address this, is the ability to better identify the level of danger as new apps are emerging. You know, new apps drop every single day. So it's possible that an app could come out that is, you know, 
really, really invasive. You know, last year there was a very popular face swap app that turned out to be nothing but a hacker into people's social media accounts. That app became super popular. It, and within about a week, everyone had used it and then it had faded away. All those people had their identities basically cloned. So that's my big concern on that is this stuff comes out and by the time it's even identified as being dangerous, it's, it's done its job and it's, it's off and running. So I'm, I'm really hoping that, that the organizations can really look at this stuff and say, hey, let's talk to each other and get the cybersecurity people when they identify something, it's got to get to the lawmakers and we're, we can't wait months and months and have hearings and talks, you know, action needs to happen immediately. And unfortunately, that's not really how government works. So as much as I think this is a really good first step, I'm a bit leery and really saying that this is actually going to make a difference. Let's bring on another caller now. Matthew is with us here in Wisconsin. Matthew, hi. How you doing? Good. What did you want to bring up, Matthew? Um, I don't think they should be banning social media, even though I don't agree with TikTok or any of that stuff. But we live in a free country. You know, we we should have the right to voice our opinions on whatever platform you would like without government censorship. Matthew, thanks for the call. Steve, uh, use at our own risk, and, and we have the right to use a platform, uh, even if it's from China, if we want to. Well, and that's definitely a valid point. And when they talk about banning TikTok, they're not really talking about personal usage of, of TikTok. If, if you want to go on TikTok and, and, and do whatever you want, yes, you, you, you can do that. The, the issue is, in today's world, a lot of people are using hardware devices like cell phones for both their personal life as well as their business life. And that's where the concern is, that if you have a cell phone that you've got an app for your work that you log in with a secure name and an email address and a password that gets into you know sensitive data or private research data that your company works for but you also have the TikTok app on your phone for personal use TikTok can actually get into that app you have for business so that's where the concern is now the easy solution of this is everybody walks around with two cell phones, one for work, one for personal life. But, you know, human beings are not going to go for that idea. And that's the concern here is that our, our personal and professional lives have become so intertwined with each other that technology companies have basically used that idea to, to jump from one, one side of our lives to the other using the same piece of hardware but going back to banning outright TikTok for personal use i do disagree with that but i also think people consumers do an awful job at knowing how these apps work nobody reads the terms of agreement they scroll through it they click that box and immediately get to the cat videos so a lot of this you know the responsibility ultimately does fall on the consumer but the reality is, is the vast majority of consumers do not take the time and effort to properly protect themselves. So that's where the government may step up and say, well, if people are ending up hurting themselves, maybe we need to take action.
therein lies the dilemma that we're talking about. Steve, in just our last uh, 20 seconds, give us one tip for consumers to be a little safer online. Be careful. You know, <laughs> when in doubt, always assume that whatever you put on your phone is going to be seen, heard, read, looked at by not only a lot of companies and marketing people, but also potentially foreign countries. So just be cognizant of what you post. Nothing is private, nothing disappears, and everything is archived. Steve, we'll leave it there. Thanks for joining us again. Great. Thanks for having me, Rob. That's Steve Knoll, a digital and social media marketing professor at Madison College. He joined us to talk about the Restrict Act. That's a newly introduced Senate bill that could restrict the usage of some foreign-owned technologies, including the social media platform TikTok. Now, police in Wisconsin and around the country are adapting to how they respond to people who are in a mental or behavioral health crisis. That's especially true in schools. As Hope Kerwin reports, a growing number of departments are turning to therapy dogs as a new tool to aid their responses. The newest rookie at the La Crosse Police Department is already patrolling the hallways of Northside Elementary School. He and his partner, Officer Ryan Ledvina, cause an immediate reaction among the students. <laughs> Cheddar is a five-month-old Labradoodle puppy who's in training to be the department's new therapy dog. He has fluffy orange-brown fur and lots of puppy energy. And during a visit to a kindergarten classroom, he is the center of attention. <laughs> Are you an officer? I am. Oh my God. He's my partner. This positive interaction is exactly what Cheddar is here to do. Unlike patrol canines, police therapy dogs aren't responsible for sniffing out drugs or taking down a fleeing suspect. Cheddar's job will be to help soothe someone who's experiencing a mental health crisis or to comfort the victim of a crime. Sean Coudron is Lacrosse's chief of police. We wanted Cheddar to be able to assist in those situations, um, maybe help bring a, a, a calming nature to the situation so that, you know, we as, as, as police officers could better help them. Lacrosse is one of at least eight departments in Wisconsin that added therapy dogs within the last year, and there's science to back up the impact these dogs can have. A study published last year by researchers in England found that elementary students who interacted with a therapy dog had lower stress levels than students who didn't. Oshkosh Police Chief Dean Smith is president of the Wisconsin Chiefs of Police Association. He says many departments are looking for new ways to respond to people who are having a mental or behavioral health emergency. We have to find different ways to solve problems within our communities and using different tools available to us. Um, I, I, I just feel like it's a it's a tool that's going to be more and more prevalent within agencies. For many departments, the dogs are funded primarily through donations. Kudron says Cheddar was donated by a nearby breeder, and a local dog trainer donated obedience and therapy classes. But he thinks any added costs are a worthwhile investment. He's hoping Cheddar will serve as an ambassador for officers, especially with residents who don't feel comfortable approaching the police. It's just another resource for us to share with our community um, and to break down barriers. Uh, when it comes to just interacting with, with anyone to understand who we are as a department, 
Um, Cheddar kind of helps humanize us as officers. Kudron acknowledged that there's been increased scrutiny of police in recent years. In La Crosse, the school district decided to scale back the number of officers in schools after finding a higher rate of juvenile arrests in the community than in similar cities. Kudron says getting cheddar was not a direct response to the criticism, but he believes the program highlights the value officers can bring to schools and the community. In Wausau, school resource officer Nick Stetzer has been working with his dog, Badge, for almost six years now. Before he was a police therapy dog, Badge was Stetzer's pet. Stetzer says he put Badge through therapy training after he saw a growing number of kids taken into custody for their protection after making suicidal comments. Stetzer says it was a tough sell to his superiors in the department, but he was convinced a therapy dog could comfort students during a traumatic experience. I don't know what what it is, but talking to me with a dog is way easier than talking to me as a police officer without having the dog. Just as soon as he walks in the room, you can tell people act differently. Stetzer says he's found that kids who are struggling can benefit from spending time with Badge before they reach a crisis point. A game of fetch with a flat-coated retriever might create an opportunity for him to bring up tough questions and find out what resources a student needs. At almost nine years old, Stetzer says Badge is getting close to the typical retirement age for police canines. Hopefully we can make it to 10. He's slowing down a little bit, still doing really good work. But even when Badge hangs up his leash, Stetzer says he's confident there will be support for the therapy dog program for years to come. Hope Kerwin, Wisconsin Public Radio. Coming up after the news, President Biden released his budget proposal today. It includes some changes to Medicare funding. Republicans say they too have a plan to update Medicare and keep it solvent. We'll look at the differences and examine the future of the Medicare system and look at some of the basics of how the different parts of Medicare work, who they affect, and their funding models and what they mean for the future of the program. And as always, you can join in with your questions, comments, maybe your experiences with the Medicare system. Remember, you can follow these conversations all the time online at WPR.org or with the Wisconsin Public Radio app, stream live, or check out our archives. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. Central Time, I'm Rob Ferrett. Coming up, what's in a name? We'll look at the top names for newborns in the United States and the trends that drive some names to the top and leave others behind. Now, President Biden released his third federal budget proposal today. It includes proposed changes to Medicare. Those changes would include raising the payroll tax for those earning $400,000 or more and expanding Medicare's ability to negotiate drug prices. In an opinion piece in Tuesday's New York Times, the president says his plan will extend Medicare's solvency for the next 25 years without cutting benefits. Republicans say they also have a plan to keep Medicare solvent, but without raising taxes. The partisan divide over the future of Medicare led to a contentious moment at last month's State of the Union address. Some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. Let me give you... Anybody who doubts it, contact my office 
I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. You can join in with your thoughts and questions on the future of Medicare at 800-642-1234. Are you enrolled in Medicare yourself? Are there things that work for you? Are there things that don't? Do you have questions about uh, what pays for Medicare and how it works? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. Tom Oliver is a professor of population health sciences at the UW School of Medicine and Public Health. Tom, welcome back to Central Time. Thanks. Good to be with you, Rob. I want to start out talking about the basics of Medicare, Tom, because I got to admit, I've talked about Medicare and Medicaid Social Security on the air for years and years, and I still get a little confused over where they blur into each other. First of all, who uses the Medicare system? Well, this is for folks who have paid into the Social Security system for 10 years or more. And when they reach age 65, they then become eligible uh, for Medicare. And we can talk more about that. Then in addition to that, so that's about 55 uh, to 60 million Americans. There's another six or 7 million Americans who are permanently disabled under Social Security. And they are also entitled to uh, Medicare uh, benefits. So we're talking about 60, 65 million Americans uh, and a very good chunk of uh, both the country's population and here in Wisconsin as well. Well, let's get into the ABCs of Medicare or maybe the ABDs. There's Medicare Part A, B and D that people may hear about. What are those different components of the system? Well, you know, it might be best to back up as to is this actually a conversation about Medicare or not? Uh, because honestly, this is all part of President Biden's budget proposals, mm-hmm. and uh, he's going to have to work out with the Congress how we pay our bills over the next few years. Uh, and so largely, this is not about Medicare at all. It's just part of a bigger fight and a bigger political process over federal budgeting and a reduction of the federal debt. And then on the other hand, there are these proposals are, I think, a preemptive move by the president to modify Medicare, but in a particular way that's mm-hmm. seen as protecting its long-term future as well as protecting current beneficiaries. And so uh, just a very you know, big picture uh, is what happened. Well, in the last 20-some years, we've had two major uh, income tax cuts in the early 2000s and then again in 2017. And then we had two really economic disasters, the Great Recession in 2008, 2009, and then the COVID-19 pandemic. And so that really increased government spending at the same time certain kinds of revenues went down. So part of it is like, why do we even have these big budget deficits? Uh, Now, because we're fighting inflation, uh, and we have higher interest rates, everything the government pays for, whether it's health care or defense or crop subsidies or highway construction or anything else, uh, it's going to cost the government more uh, in interest payments. And uh, so we'd rather pay for real things than paying interest, obviously. The other big thing that is specific about Medicare is there's a much uh, a larger growing population, as you mentioned, of older Americans eligible for Social Security and Medicare. And depending on our immigration policies, fewer working age Americans paying into the Social Security and Medicare programs. And then finally, one last thing, healthcare 
almost always goes up faster in terms of its prices and payments, whether by government or private employers or individuals, than income and prices for other goods and services. So this is a healthcare discussion. It's mm -hmm. a Medicare discussion, but it's also about our general society and our general uh, economic situation. Sure. Um, Key, keying in on Medicare. So 2028 is a year that uh, gets talked about a lot, a point where I believe it's the Medicare Part A system uh, won't be paying for itself in some ways. It doesn't mean Medicare collapses at that point, but why are we focused in on this 2028 concept, Tom? Well, way back in 1965, uh, the uh, President Johnson and the Democrats who pushed through Medicare at the time, they were focused only on hospital insurance, which was the most expensive part of health care for people. And so they created Part A of uh, Medicare, and it was funded through a trust fund that the payroll taxes that we pay, on, those of us who have uh, hourly wages or a salary, that is a, a small chunk of that goes into Social Security and Medicare uh, while we're working, and then we get Medicare later on when we retire. Uh, so that is a trust fund that comes and goes and is dependent on certain kinds of income, whereas the rest of Medicare is paid for by different kinds of taxes, income taxes and some others, as well as contributions in the form of premiums, deductibles and coinsurance from beneficiaries receiving the services. Talking to Tom Oliver from the UW School of Medicine and Public Health, looking at the future of Medicare and how we pay for it. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Let's go to your calls now. Steve is with us in Ashland. Steve, hi. Hi. Um, I'm paying about $750 a month for a life-saving medication, and Medicare pays for about $2,400 a month for that same medication. I think it costs AbbVie Pharmaceutical about $100 a month to make that drug. I'm wondering why we're still not negotiating, why Medicare is still not negotiating with the pharmaceutical industry on medication prices. Steve, thanks for the call. Uh, this is part of the president's proposal. Uh, there are some drugs uh, now that Medicare can negotiate in some ways on. The president wants to add to that. Can you talk about that piece of the puzzle, Tom? Yes, I am very hopeful that you will see a better situation quite soon. Uh, going back to last year in the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, that began to allow Medicare for the very first time ever to start negotiating prescription drug prices. And remember, Medicare doesn't actually pay directly for prescription drugs because of this, uh, Rob, you referred to this Part D. Mm -hmm. There's these private uh, prescription drug coverage plans that uh, Medicare beneficiaries have to sign up for. So it is the beginning of the really high cost uh, drugs. It sounds like yours ought to be one of those, but apparently it is not yet. But this new proposal by the president would expand Medicare's negotiating powers to many more drugs uh, and take us from a handful of overvalued drugs that are very obvious to a broader class of drugs 
that are still super costly uh, to those of you who need to take those particular medications. So I'm, I'm hopeful we will see this begin uh, as Medicare has in many other areas, uh, payments to physicians, payments to hospitals, to step into the game uh, slowly, but then aggressively move uh, over the years to make this a much more systematic part of something that would be really important to many Americans. Steve, thanks for sharing your experience. Uh, Tom, uh, critics of this negotiation idea, and I'm thinking of uh, there's an editorial in the Wall Street Journal, for example, have made the case uh, with these negotiations, with lowering uh, reimbursements or compensation for the production of these medications, it's a disincentive to research a new drug, to produce a new drug, to make it available to the market. If a company looks at the bottom line and says, well, we're going to make less money down the road because of this change, maybe we shouldn't develop this drug in the first place. Do you worry about that disincentive effect? Undoubtedly, there would be uh, some disincentive. That's objectively true. But how much of a disincentive? There are still lengthy patent protections for uh, true breakthrough drugs. Uh, you can still have plenty of what we call the blockbusters uh, to come along. And so I think it's really a distraction when the industry says that we're going to lose all new research and development and new innovation because there's plenty of economic incentive and financial interest in developing new, more profitable medications that affect a lot of people. Uh, and, and so I, I worry more about incentives for researching drugs that affect very few people and so-called orphan drugs um, in terms of these kinds of problems. Um, and you know, the honest, the honest truth is um, uh, drug companies don't put that much into research and development. Uh, compared to lots of other costs that they incur and sources of profits. Talking to Tom Oliver, Professor of Population Health Sciences at the UW School of Medicine and Public Health, looking at uh, Medicare. The president has some suggested changes in his budget. Congressional Republicans talking as well, and you can too, at 800-642-1234. Are there changes you'd like to see in Medicare? Do you rely on it yourself? What works for you? What doesn't? If you are a health care provider, do you have thoughts on the Medicare system? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. We'll continue the conversation coming up here on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our talk with Tom Oliver, Professor of Population Health Sciences at the UW School of Medicine and Public Health, taking a look at the future of Medicare. And you can join in at 800-642-1234 with your thoughts, your experiences, your questions for our guest. That's 800-642-1234. Go back to your calls now. Nancy is with us in Milwaukee. Nancy, hi. Hello. I've helped. I have belonged to a Medicare Advantage plan for many years, but there were many years when I was younger that I hardly ever saw the doctor, and yet my insurance company was being paid a very large sum of money every month for my care. But as I said, I was in very good health and didn't need to see a doctor. But now that I'm older, I'm going to be charged $1,000 as a copay for a drug for advanced osteoporosis. And I resent the fact that now I'm paying this very large copay when the insurance company got the benefit of this uh, number of dollars, which I think was over 500 per month, for my care. And yet, and yet I'm being treated now as as paying a copay that a patient would pay 
who had to go to a doctor maybe more than once a month every single year. Nancy, thanks for the call. Top Medicare Advantage, uh, it's a... It's a different kind of animal. Can you tell us what that is and uh, if Nancy's situation is common? Yes. Well, this was introduced uh, several decades ago and evolved over time. But basically, it tries to combine all the different parts of Medicare, the hospital care, the uh, physicians and home care, uh, and also prescription drugs all into one package. And it's attractive to a lot of folks who have been part of a private health plan through their employer or some other source uh, through through their working lives. Um, the challenge here is that each of these plans has its own different rules internally for how much uh, they're going to cover different elements of this. Um, again, there's a little bit of hope in the Inflation Reduction Act in 2022, and now moving forward, to try to stop people like Nancy from having to pay, uh, you know, more than a certain amount for deductibles toward any particular drug. And again, $1,000 for a single medication, well, that's something that, you know, should cover most of your prescriptions for all of them for the whole year. And the idea that this is something you're subject to year after year after year is also really difficult for folks who don't have, you know, uh, uh, unlimited um, income, right? So this is uh, a big challenge for Medicare to start looking across the board at all these drug plans and try to start setting some tighter rules that protect folks. So while some protections are underway and have already been enacted, uh, there's got to be obviously more and much more uh, setting sites on particular drugs that are uh, really seemingly very much out of line in terms of their pricing, like insulin and other things. Yes, we've made some progress. We have a lot more to go. Nancy, thanks a lot for that call. I want to check out, Tom, uh, some of the specific proposals that people are bouncing around aimed at the long-term uh, funding of Medicare. Now, President Biden, we mentioned the, the drug negotiations. He also said, OK, let's bump up the Medicare uh, payroll tax for uh, people making over $400,000 a year. I think it's by 1.2 percent. Uh, those two together, he says, uh, add another 25 years to the healthy financial life of Medicare. What do you think of that part of the uh, president's budget? Well, the intent, obviously, because we talked about this almost artificial uh thing that people call bankruptcy if we go if we empty the hospital insurance trust fund um people get very fixated on how many years left you know uh they're uh, given rates um it's a very clever way to take the new money from um taxes on much higher income americans and also some additional um savings from pre prescription drug um uh reduction cost reductions funnel that all into the hospital insurance trust fund, and that would get us 25 or more years um, based on current projections. Uh, again, it's unfortunate that Medicare is so fragmented. It's not a single coherent health plan, and it's got lots of gaps. And I think, honestly, when I teach my students and talk to regular people, um, they don't even understand how much money Medicare beneficiaries have to pay out of their own pocket um, simply to cover all the things that Medicare doesn't cover, even as expensive as it is to taxpayers and the federal government. 
And then uh, the Republican House Study Committee a couple months back floated the idea of uh, boosting the minimum age for Medicare recipients to future for future recipients now uh, from 65 to 67. What would you see the impact of that being? Well, what they're trying to do is say, hey, we, you know, on average until COVID and opioids came along in America, we had continued to see longer life spans um, on average across the board. Uh, so we've done this with Social Security, where it, we're on our way to uh, having uh, age 67 be the start of Social Security benefits for folks. Um, why not Medicare? Well, the answer is that we have different kinds of jobs, I think. And if you are, you know, in construction or, or working, in, you know, in uh, agriculture or a whole host of uh, very difficult jobs where you're on your feet or lifting or things, bodies break down. Uh, we different folks have mental um, illness challenges. Um, it is not really just something you can automatically say, hey, just two more years, everybody can uh, be fine. The other re reality check is if you increased that, um, Medicare wouldn't save very much money. Those two years, as uh, Nancy pointed out, are kind of the cheap years for Medicare, where people are still pretty healthy and not using that much health care. So if you want to do something about it, you know, you'd have to deal with people who are over 80 or uh, 85 years old. Uh, that's where a lot of the costs for Medicare are end of life, so to speak, in our last year of life, when a lot of things are breaking down and we have all kinds of high technology and uh, lots of different people trying to take care of us and keep us alive uh, for, you know, relatively short periods of time. Let's go back to our callers now. We've got Phyllis in Madison. Phyllis, hello. Hello. What did you want to ask about? Um, I'm wondering how the negotiating um, for drug prices by Medicare will affect the pharmacy benefit managers. Phyllis, thanks for the call. Tom, a whole other part of our health care uh, payment system, the, the people, the companies that manage our pharmacy benefits, are they impacted as you see it by the, uh, the Medicare uh, prescription drug negotiation power? Well, you know, this just goes back this one year. Uh, basically, if you look at the history of Medicare, a whole system has to be built and put in place. It's going to have to deal with the pharmacy benefit managers and their rules and their practices, which are allowable, which are encouraged, which do they actually have to take up and start doing more strongly uh, and setting these much more consistent rules across um, all the different drug plans and applying to all the beneficiaries. So we, I think we've got a long ways to go in building the practices and the institutions and the rules and then actually enforcing and making sure that they're working well. Uh, but they're obviously getting a chunk of all the money. Are they providing the value in uh, helping us uh, save money for those of us actually using the drugs? Thanks a lot for the call, Phyllis. Tom, in just our last minute or so, we've been talking about you know, what we're hearing from uh, Democrats and Republicans on this. What would you like to see policymakers focus on when it comes to Medicare? Well, I think it's actually needs to be greatly improved. Um, there's, as I said, there's many holes in it. Um, for example, it doesn't pay anything towards long-term care for people who need that beyond a short month-long stay recovering from a hospital surgery or something else. 
Uh, there's a lot of other gaps that are still, there's no dental care. <laughs> there's no uh, other kinds of things that are uh, part of the body and uh, certainly part. And uh, also the president is in, uh, proposing mental health improvements um, as well. So there's a lot of things and Medicare needs to be greatly improved. And, you know, when it comes to reducing our Medicare spending, um, you know, really have simple choices. You can cut benefits or you can cut payments to healthcare providers, or you can increase revenues from all taxpayers, some taxpayers, or from current beneficiaries. And so it's obviously politically a lot better to not make the program worse in terms of its benefits. So healthcare providers are gonna to have to get a little more realistic about uh, their growth in spending and their use of technology. And we've got to get more careful about where is the healthcare money being spent and on what things are they are necessary, which ones are appropriate, which ones are really not appropriate and try to get much more careful about that. But it's a very, very difficult uh, process. And as you can imagine, each of us feels differently about the things that affect us personally versus everybody else. Tom, thanks again for joining us today. Thank you so much. That's Tom Oliver, professor of population health sciences at the UW School of Medicine and Public Health. He was with us today to help us understand where the two parties would like to take Medicare into the future. Coming up tomorrow on The Morning Show with Kate Archer-Kent, can people in Wisconsin find child care when and where they need it? Join the conversation. That's tomorrow morning at 7 here on the Ideas Network.